if the bill itself is acknowledging that there are mutated and multiple strains of COVID-19, why would we not want to protect ourselves and especially our most vulnerable, our children from this global virus? Because masks don't work. That's not true. Thank you, Chairwoman. So masks don't work. Really? Hey there. My name is Dave Robinson. I'm your friendly host here on Bench Talk the Weekend Science. And you just heard House Representative Attica Scott ask Representative Lynn Beckler for the logic behind House Bill 51, which he sponsors. HB 51 would prohibit all public schools and universities from adopting any mask mandates in the future. And today I want to discuss the research publications that Beckler might be referring to when he says masks don't work. But first, an update on the other bills being discussed in the Kentucky legislature this session. Let's hear from Rob Weber, Communications and Policy Director at the Kentucky Academy of Science about this. And don't forget, this show, and Forward Radio in general, doesn't take positions on bills. We are playing this story as part of our educational programming. We think people need to know what's happening in the Kentucky legislature. So without further ado, here is Rob Weber. The Kentucky General Assembly is in the final half of its 2022 legislative session. Fewer than a dozen bills have passed into law so far, but that's typical at this point in a session. Sessions typically get busier with each passing week, and we've certainly seen activity in recent days that shows that things are picking up. One of the bills that made headlines recently is Senate Bill 138, which would require public schools to provide instruction consistent with designated concepts related to race, sex, and religion. The bill also lists 24 papers and documents that it wants spread throughout the curriculum of public schools. This includes the Mayflower Compact, the Monroe Doctrine, speeches from Frederick Douglass and Ronald Reagan. The bill passed the Senate 28-8 to on February 24th, but not before some questioned why curriculum would be set in Frankfurt and why such matters weren't instead left to school councils and school boards. Senate Bill 138 now goes to the House of Representatives for consideration. The House of Representatives passed legislation this week to help Kentucky State University get through some tough financial straits. House Bill 250 would appropriate $23 million to Kentucky State University. Under this proposal, the Council on Post-Secondary Education would oversee a management improvement plan for Kentucky State University, as well as make recommendations on repayment for the money. This bill has now been delivered to the Senate for consideration. House Bill 45 is on the move in the Senate. This bill, which was already approved by the House, won a Senate committee's approval. It would help lure advanced recycling facilities to Kentucky. These facilities would convert post-use plastic into its smallest bits and pieces that could then become raw materials, feedstocks, chemicals, and other products. One thing interesting about this bill is a couple of the state's top environmental organizations are on different sides of this issue, with some saying the chemical recycling process produces too many greenhouse gases, but others saying that the prospect of keeping plastic out of landfills deserves a shot. 
On February 24th, the Senate approved a resolution that would speed up the termination of the state of emergency regarding the COVID virus. The state of emergency was set to expire on April 15th, but under this resolution, it would instead end on March 7th. This resolution now goes to the House for consideration. It passed the Senate on a 28-8 vote. On the issue of COVID, it's worth noting that House Bill 51, a bill that would no longer allow mask mandates in any schools or child cares or universities in the state, that bill remains in the orders of the day in the House. What that means is it could come up for a vote at any time. Perhaps it will even be taken up before you hear this report. Also in the House, there's a stack of bills dealing with the pandemic. Bills such as one that would say employers cannot require employees to disclose their immunization status, one that says employers can't require immunization as a condition of employment, another one that says the same thing goes for universities. These bills have not seen movement yet. They're still right at their starting point in the process. Whether or not they move, time will tell. And we'll wrap up today with an interesting bill dealing with state symbols. Ever since coal was declared the state mineral, people who care about accuracy have pointed out that it would be more precise if it was labeled as the state rock rather than state mineral. And ever since Kentucky agate was designated the state rock, they've said it would be more accurate for it to be labeled the state mineral rather than the state rock. So, will the legislature allow the state rock and state mineral to switch spots? That's what's proposed by House Bill 511. You can see the entire list of bills the Kentucky Academy of Science is keeping an eye on on the Academy's webpage, kyscience.org. If you have thoughts or feedback to share on any of the bills under consideration this year, we certainly hope you'll contact your state legislators you can do so toll-free at 1-800-372-7181. Again, that's 1-800-372-7181. Let your lawmakers hear from you. Make your voice heard. That was Rob Weber of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Thanks, Rob. Now, one of the bills that he mentioned is HB 51. If HB 51 becomes law, it would prohibit public schools and colleges from instituting any sort of mask mandates in the future. Now, on our show last week, we reviewed the arguments for this bill, and there certainly are good reasons to be against masks in school. Students have a more difficult time understanding their teachers, for instance, and it's stressful not being able to see the faces of your classmates and your friends, and it could aggravate asthma or other respiratory problems. But supporters of HB 51 also point out that there's scientific research that indicates that masks aren't really effective at reducing the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, and that's what we want to focus on right now. What is this research? As a way of introducing this topic, I wanted to play a short clip from a meeting of the Kentucky House Standing Committee on Education that was held in Frankfort, Kentucky on February 15, 2022. They were discussing HB 51. 
So we're going to hear Rob Weber again giving testimony against this bill. Let's hear that. It's just a few minutes. Morning, Madam Chair and committee members. I appreciate this opportunity to uh, share a brief statement with you from the Kentucky Academy of Science. And I, I want to note that this statement has also been endorsed by Kentuckians for Science Education. The Kentucky Academy of Science is the largest professional organization in the state for scientists with over 4,000 members. Most of our membership consists of either college faculty members or students. Uh, recent data in Kentucky has shown that people within schools daily are more susceptible to contracting COVID-19 than the general public. House Bill 51 would remove the ability of colleges and schools to be guided by science when decisions are made on masking policies. And prohibiting the ability to require masks would remove one of the layered preventive strategies that helps keep kids in school and learning. And we're also concerned about the, the possibility of even more educators leaving the profession if they uh, feel they're at greater risk for COVID-19. So we at KAS respectfully request that you continue to allow masking policies at our colleges and schools so that we can keep students and faculty safe. I thank you very much for your time and service. Representative Hart, would you like to comment? I keep hearing the comments that uh, we're following the science on these decisions. Do you have any recent research studies that I could get my hands on and look and read that? Because during the interim, I've sat in some committees where there's been doctors and reputable people on the other side of the science that's produced research studies that are contrary to this statement. And I'm trying to keep an open mind and look at both angles. And so I would like to see a study from either a university, a medical school, or a medical association that actually confirms that masks work. Right. Uh, I've recently looked at a, a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. I'd like to submit that to the committee staff to, to be shared with members so you could see that or, or any other. Hmm. It sounds like Rob Weber was ready for that question about specific research articles. And I'm not sure which paper from the Journal of the American Medical Association that he provided the committee, because there's something like seven of them, all showing that masks actually work. But what are these papers that Representatives Beckler and Hart are saying indicate that masks aren't really helping prevent the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus? What are these papers? Well, on last week's show, we told you about the article published by a researcher at University of Louisville that didn't find an association between mask mandates and COVID-19 spread in the United States. But we also pointed out that there is a rebuttal to this article that was written by a different group of UofL researchers, and these were epidemiologists. They called this original article, quote, poorly structured with a sketchy and biased description of the background and a seriously flawed methodology and improper analysis, unquote. So there are some issues with that paper. But there are two other anti-mask research papers that I want to mention today. They are the two publications that U.S. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky has cited in the past. Now, Rand Paul is the senator that refuses to wear a mask in public, even on the Senate floor. He was the first senator to get COVID back in March of 2020, and 
he refused to self-quarantine for six days after testing positive, he's the one who is still telling his constituents to ignore CDC guidelines, and he justifies all of this by citing these two specific research papers, and I want to tell you about them. One of the papers he cites was on research carried out in Denmark back in 2020. The thing about this particular paper is that it doesn't really deliver the results that Senator Paul is saying it does. The article received a lot of pre-print publicity on social media, and so it's possible that Rand Paul or his staff relied more on the interpretations of the article rather than reading the paper themselves. The paper was considerably more nuanced than what was reported on Facebook or Twitter or by Senator Paul. The authors of this Denmark paper don't actually say that masks don't work. They're just saying that masks aren't the end-all, be-all. Let me quote the final summation from this Danish paper. Quote, The recommendation to wear surgical masks to supplement other public health measures did not reduce the SARS-CoV-2 infection rate among wearers by more than 50%, unquote. So they aren't saying that the masks don't protect the wearer. They're just saying that the level of protection is not more than 50%. Well, that doesn't really surprise me when you consider the way this study was conducted. Here's what they did. They found 3,000 people who spent at least three hours a day outside of the home They gave them free masks and recommended that they wear those masks while they were out in public. And then for comparison, they found a different set of 3,000 people who were not given masks and they were not told to wear masks in public. Then two months later, they tested all of these subjects for exposure to the coronavirus by looking for antibodies to the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus in their bodies. Of the subjects who had been encouraged to wear masks for these two months, 42 had become infected with the coronavirus. Of those who were not encouraged to wear masks, 53 got infected. So, out of 3,000 subjects, 11 more maskless people caught COVID-19 compared to mask wearers. Only 11 more people. Since that's not a huge difference, the authors determined that masks don't provide more than 50% protection. But they did provide protection. Like I said, it really doesn't surprise me that much. I'm going to use automobile safety as an example. Think about the safety devices we have in our cars. We have seatbelts and airbags and bumpers and rearview mirrors and anti-lock brakes and stability controls, and we have cameras and shatter-resistant glass. All these things make our cars safer to be in, but just one of those devices by themselves is really not enough. No one device contributes that much to our overall safety, but taken together, we are significantly safer in our cars than without them. And it's the same thing with trying to reduce the spread of COVID-19. We can isolate ourselves from people who might be infected. We can stay six feet or more away from those who we do have to be around. We can wash our hands frequently. We can clean the surfaces of things people touch a lot. We can cover our mouths when we cough or sneeze. We can seek 
good ventilation when indoors and try to spend more time outdoors. We can use air filter systems, get tested for COVID-19 when possible, get vaccinated, and yes, we can wear a mask. But none of these actions by themselves are going to totally protect us, but you put them all together and you have significantly more protection. So masks have a place in that strategy. And this Dutch paper is not contradicting that idea. They're just saying masks don't provide by themselves 50% protection. And another thing about this Danish study, they only looked at how masks protect the wearer. They freely admit in the paper that they did not examine the role of masks in preventing transmission of the virus to other people who are near the mask wearer. That was outside the realm of this study. So it really doesn't seem like Rand Paul has chosen the correct paper to cite since he's trying to argue that masks don't work. This paper doesn't justify that idea. And the other study that Rand Paul cites is a research study carried out in Vietnam back in 2015. And this was five years before the SARS-CoV-2 virus emerged. These researchers got 1,600 volunteers among the staff who worked at various hospitals in Vietnam. They divided these 1,600 volunteers into three groups. First, there were those who wore regular cloth masks. Then there were those who wore medical masks. And then there were those who wore some type of masks, sometimes, but not all the time. Then they examined these hospital workers continuously for five weeks to see which ones came down with any sort of respiratory infection or flu. They took throat swabs and examined the swabs for the presence of 17 different respiratory viruses. What did they conclude? Well, hospital workers who wore cloth masks end up having the most cases of viral infection, the lowest number of cases of infection were in those that wore surgical masks or N95 masks, and the group that occasionally wore a mask came out to be in the middle. So the implication was that cloth masks don't work, and they might even be bad. There are some big problems with this research, though. First of all, they didn't have a true experimental control group because they decided that it would be unethical to ask their volunteers to go without a mask while they were working in a hospital. So they did not have an unmasked control group to compare anything to. So saying that cloth masks gave the lowest protection, that's lower than in people who wore surgical masks or N95 masks, either routinely or occasionally. But it's not worse than not wearing a mask at all because that wasn't even tested. Secondly, the compliance levels were relatively low in this study. The subjects only followed their researchers' guidelines from 24 to 57% of the time. So these volunteers really spent a lot of time without their masks on, even though they were directed to wear their masks. <laughs> Sound familiar? And as for the cloth mask being linked to more infections, the same researchers carried out a follow-up experiment that showed that the biggest problem with the cloth masks was keeping them clean. They did some research and found that if you clean the cloth masks frequently, 
they perform much better than in this original study. So clean those things. The problem with the way Senator Rand Paul interpreted this paper from Vietnam is that instead of distinguishing between medical masks and cloth masks, he just said masks, period. Rand Paul even made a YouTube video where he proclaimed that, quote, most of the masks you get over the counter don't work. They don't prevent infection, unquote. So Rand Paul could have said cloth masks don't work, but even that would have been a misrepresentation. But to say no mask works, that's really not right. And I can tell you that this video was removed from YouTube in August of 2021, and he got completely banned from YouTube for a week because of this inaccurate claim. So, are masks effective at preventing us from getting infected or spreading COVID-19? Well, there's at least 18 research papers published in peer-reviewed journals that indicate that masks do work. And there's these three other papers that are frequently cited as showing that masks don't work. One is an epidemiology paper written by non-epidemiologists. One ended up concluding that masks do work, but not at a level above 50%. And one paper didn't have any experimental controls. They had very low compliance levels by the volunteers and mainly concluded that non-laundered cloth masks don't work as well as medical masks. Do masks work? You'll just have to decide yourself. Oh, time to move on. It's the first of the month, so it's time to hear from Bench Talk's resident astronomer-physicist, J. Scott Miller. Here's Scott telling us what we can see in the night sky during the month of March. March brings on thoughts of spring, officially starting soon. Astronomically, the first day of spring in the northern hemisphere is defined as that moment when the sun appears to be exactly over the equator. That moment this year is on March 20th at 11.33 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Of course, this also means the sun rises directly in the east and sets directly in the west, giving us about 12 hours of darkness and 12 hours of daylight at this time. This might be good for folks who need that extra amount of daylight, but if I want to go outside to view the night sky, it pushes that back a bit. And as we move toward summer, that means even later evening starts to view the wonders of the night sky. Heading outside about 7.30 in the evening in early March, the moon is the only non-stellar companion. Planets have now left the evening sky, but the moon now can put on a show of its own as it moves through the zodiacal constellations, those constellations through which the ecliptic passes. The ecliptic is the sun's apparent path across the sky over the course of a year. Beginning on the 7th, the moon is a crescent phase in the western sky. It is located among the stars of Taurus the Bull. Each successive night will see it fuller in appearance as it jumps through Taurus, jumping over Orion before appearing among the stars of Gemini. By the 18th, it will be at full moon phase, which puts it in the opposite side of the sky as the sun, rising as the sun sets and setting as the sun rises. The moon has the name Worm Moon from the Native Americans, as the ground begins to soften after the cold of winter, allowing earthworms to appear. It also goes by other names, such as the Crow Moon, the Crust Moon, the Sap Moon, and the Linton Moon. By that time, it will have crossed into the constellation of Virgo the Maiden, 
and, as is characteristic of full moons occurring throughout the year, obscuring many of the dim stars one begins to see as it treks across the sky that night. As for constellations, there are more than a few, some of which I have already mentioned. Most notable because the stars that make them up are relatively bright, and the figures seem to reflect their namesakes, are the constellations Taurus the Bull and Orion the Hunter. Taurus is most easily marked by the V-shaped cluster of stars called the Hyades. It now looks like a right-sided V and marks the face of Taurus. Aldebaran, the bright reddish-hued star, marks the end of one arm of the V. Though it would seem part of the cluster, it is about half the distance between us and that cluster. Almost gives one a 3D aspect to the night sky. If I extend the arms of the V upward a bit more, two more relatively bright stars are seen, marking the tips of the horns of Taurus. To the right of the Hyades is a tighter grouping of stars called the Pleiades. This group appears to be tighter than the Hyades and with good reason. They are even farther away from us, further adding to the 3D aspect of the nighttime sky. To the left of Taurus, more around to the south in the early evening, is Orion the Hunter. The three stars marking a belt around his waist first catch the eyes. Two bright stars above mark his shoulders, two below his knees. A line of faint stars just below the belt marks a sword tucked there. The shoulder star that is left of the two is Betelgeuse. The one that marks his right shoulder is Bellatrex. Midway between these two, one can see a patch of three stars making a triangle. These would mark the head of Orion. Below the belt stars are Rigel, a bright bluish-white star marking his front knee. The dimmer Saif marks his back knee, as Orion is pictured standing in a direction facing toward Taurus. The belt stars of Orion can be used to point westward toward Aldebaran in Taurus, but one can also extend that line eastward to point toward Sirius. Sirius is the brightest star in the sky for several reasons. First, it is relatively close to us at a distance of 8.6 light years. Second, it is a star much hotter than our sun and thus more luminous. Sirius is about 25 times more luminous than our sun. Sirius is about 70% larger than the sun in diameter, giving it more surface area from which to emit light compared to our sun. So, putting a bigger, hotter, closer star to us than any other star makes Sirius catch it in our eyes. Sirius is the brightest star in the constellation Canis Major, the Big Dog. With a bit of imagination, it's not too hard to put together the stars of Canis Major and see a dog. Just above Sirius is a triangle of stars all of about the same brightness, marking the head. Below Sirius are several stars that can be imagined to be the chest and front legs of the dog. Below and to the east of Sirius is a relatively bright star marking the end of its back, while stars below this second star could be the back legs of the dog. Beyond the second star, more down and to the east would be stars marking its tail. It takes a bit of practice, but it can be done. In the eastern sky, some of the constellations traditionally considered springtime constellations can be found. Almost directly east and above the horizon is Leo the lion. Leo is another constellation that with a bit of imagination can be seen for the figure it represents. One might first look for a group of stars that looks like a backwards question mark or maybe even a sickle. The bright stars at the end of the handle of the sickle is Regulus. Regulus and the sickle mark the chest and head of the lion. Closer to the horizon is a right triangle-shaped group of stars. This marks the hindquarters of the lion. In most depictions, it is pictured as a lion reposed in the sky rather than walking, not too different from the male lion I've seen at the zoo on past visits. 
Finally, in the northeastern sky, one can spot the Big Dipper. At this time of the year, the Dipper's handle points toward the northeastern horizon. It almost looks like it's doing a balancing act. The curve of the three stars marking the handle leads away from the horizon to the four stars marking the bowl of the Big Dipper. As I have said in past broadcasts, the pair of stars marking the front of the bowl of the Dipper, those two farthest from the handle, are the pointer stars. A line from the lower one, closer to Leo, to the upper one, and extended about five to six times the separation between those two, reaches Polaris, the North Star. Ever steady, located at the same angle above the horizon all night and all year, it provides one with a direction north, and by extension, the other directions along the horizon. Something predictable in what seems to be an ever unpredictable world. Somewhat calming, as I now go back inside after a brief tour of the night skies of March. You've been listening to Bench Talk, The Weekend Science. Thanks much, and see you next week.